So we start with what looks like smoke rushing over wood grain. This, I suspect, is meant to evoke a workbench and the elven forges of Regian, led in part by Celebrimber, grandson of Feanor via Curifin. Someone begins to speak the ring rhyme. I'm fairly confident that that's Morphid Clark, who has been cast in this show as Galadriel. If you haven't yet seen Morphid Clark in anything, I highly recommend you check out St. Maud, which was one of my favorite movies of 2019, and in which Clark is an absolute superstar performer. We then see molten metal being poured into a mold, and then, just as Galadriel says, nine for the mortal men doomed to die, water rushes over the workbench, cooling the metal. This is undoubtedly a reference to the downfall of Numenor, when Eru Iluvatar sent a great wave to sink Numenor after the Numenorians started worshipping Sauron. The cooling metal turns into mountains as Galadriel references Mordor, and then the writing on the rings glows gold before the camera zooms back to reveal the title, Lord of the Rings, the Rings of Power. And welcome to my brother, my captain, my podcast. It is January 19th of the year 2022. And today, this morning, uh, Amazon just released its first teaser trailer and the title reveal for its Lord of the Rings show, which Emily just told you is the Lord of the Rings, the Rings of Power, which, you know, they really went deep into the creative bank for that name. Uh, <laughs> so we're, we're just coming to you today to just have a little initial reaction. Uh, we didn't really see any footage that will be, you know, in the show itself. So we are really reacting to marketing and um, corporate nonsense at this point. Uh, but, you know, we are a Lord of the Rings podcast and we react to a lot of corporate nonsense. So, <laughs> Emily, what are your first impressions about this teaser trailer? Yeah, so um, besides a lot of uh, kind of uh, amorphous shrieking and and my head at the uh, idea of there being more Lord of the Rings content. Um, I feel like I have my thoughts are kind of grouped in, into two distinct things. Um, one is that like the uh, second age uh, in universe context that they are picking up on to play for to play with for this uh, series television series is really really interesting and I think um, has probably uh, well not probably definitely has a lot for them to kind of pick and choose from um, and uh, you know even though I think my initial reaction was to be kind of bitchy about it like um, I think that it it is likely a good thing that my initial uh, reaction was to be bitchy about it because it means that it's probably going to stir like quite a vibrant debate and discussion for people who are like fans of Lord of the Rings, whether they be just like kind of casual movie fans or like people like me with uh, severe uh, token induced brain damage. And um, so, so, you know, that's really exciting. And, and I think we'll talk a little bit about the history of Numenor, but uh, rather, sorry, this is my like pro manish kingdoms uh, bias coming in. We'll talk about the second age um, and the history of the second age, not just the men. Um, but to wheel it back a bit, bit and to talk about like the wider um, picture here, um, I think it merits speaking a little bit about the production context for this show, because I think, um, you know, outside of the fact that uh, it's a big new Lord of the Rings inspired production, um, there is actually a lot um, in here involved in kind of the early elements of the show that, that play into things that we've discussed on this podcast in 
in varying uh, amounts of detail. So the the first thing that I feel like as I am like high speed rambling through this uh, is that I, I think we should talk about the kind of elephant in the room and uh, with the show, which is that it's uh, produced by Amazon. Um, and I, I want to talk briefly about the uh, context under which uh, the show came to be produced by Amazon, because that in itself is interesting. Um, and it really starts with the two showrunners who wanted to pitch a show um, based on Lord of the Rings. Um, actually, hang on. No, back up. <laughs> it actually starts with a lawsuit, um, as most things Tolkien-related do. Uh, Warner Brothers and the Tolkien estate uh, had this incredibly um, acrimonious legal battle Um that you know had had multiple actually more of a legal war really and there were multiple battles in, to, in between uh the starting of the production of fellowship of the ring and the uh well in 2017 uh, which is a huge amount of time to be in court um it's very like dickensian in that way anyways uh one of the big legal battles actually kind of obstructed the production of the hobbit um and i'm sure if we ever get to talking about the hobbit movies uh we'll deal with that in greater detail but um in 2017 another lawsuit wrapped up um, and um, having settled for the amount of money that they settled for, uh, the Tolkien estate and uh, Warner Brothers sort of amicably parted ways, but only partially, because New Line Cinemas, which is now a subsidiary part of Warner Brothers, um, will continue to be involved in anything related to uh, the Lord of the Rings on screen, um, and the Tolkien estate obviously retains their right to veto things. And um, so in 2017, um, these two screenwriters have uh, decided to shop around a TV show based off of uh, Lord of the Rings or based on the works of Tolkien um, and took it to a couple different uh, TV production studios um, and basically got bounced back uh, for, I'm sure, a variety of reasons, not least the which, uh, of which is that the Tolkien estate is notoriously difficult to work with. And um, I really don't doubt that uh, nobody actually wants to to deal with that on the scale that would be required for making a TV show like this. Um, Amazon, however, uh, Amazon Studios, um, came to the table. Um, and Jeff Bezos actually took the really interesting step of getting personally involved in the negotiations, uh, which, which, you know, there, there are reasons for this. Um, the reason that Amazon was so um, enthusiastic about getting to the table with these guys is because Bezos gave a diktat to Amazon Studios saying, we need the next Game of Thrones. Um, and uh, basically sent out the, the the lackeys and the scouts at Prime Studios to go find him the next Game of Thrones, and lo and behold, the next Game of Thrones appeared to them in the form of the original Game of Thrones uh, pitched by these two guys. Um, so uh, Amazon ended up paying something like a billion dollars for the rights to uh, these films, and, and sorry, not just the rights, um, it also includes like a billion dollars that they like earmarked for the production of this series, and it's going to be um, something around five series and a spinoff. Um, and uh, they've given, I think, like 10 years of production time to it. Um, so Amazon has really gotten gung-ho about uh, getting involved with this, but I did want to highlight from the start that like... And the reason this show ended up at Amazon um, is not because Jeff Bezos or anybody at Prime Studios was um, particularly keen on having uh, The Lord of the Rings uh, as a TV show. Um, they wanted the next Game of Thrones. <laughs> yeah, uh, I guess I'm the Game of Thrones expert here. <laughs> yes, and answer for your sins. <laughs> 
Um, I, I will. I have so many to count for, but um, we're going on probably like year six or seven of the general media landscape chasing what the next Game of Thrones is. Um, we've seen iterations before, like, say, His Dark Materials over on HBO. Westworld, in some vein, was chasing Game of Thrones. Um, we had The Wheel of Time recently, also on Amazon. And when we say chasing Game of Thrones, it's kind of like twofold. In one sense, we mean the genre trappings of what Game of Thrones is, medieval fantasy, high fantasy, and something that's that fantastical to that scale. And then we also just mean something that's a fucking, you know, slam dunk corporate-wise for the bottom line, because regardless of how you feel about Game of Thrones, it dominated commercially uh, for a long time critically, and it was also just like it sucked up all the oxygen on social media. It was the thing people talked about. It might be one of the last things that people talk about in that quote-unquote monoculture, um, yeah. something that everyone was watching, everyone was commenting on, um, everyone was commenting on, trust me yeah. on that. Um <laughs> So it is very interesting to see. I mean, it's hard to say that this is something new where like the corporate or the business needs are wagging the creative tail. This has been going on forever. Um, that's my theory for the book of Boba Fett, that it mostly exists to fill a hole in Disney Plus's schedule with <laughs> some relatively cheap assets and actors. But um, generally, you know, that it's not necessarily wrong to want to emulate the success of the most successful thing of the last 10 to 15 years. Um, but it is interesting that, like you said, it's moving past uh, like all the previous Lord of the Rings content that was out there because of, you know, the Tolkien's, uh, or at least the ones that were heavily involved uh, with maintaining the estate are no longer there. And then also this is no longer in the hands of essentially the people who brought the Lord of the Rings that most people know um, is, is in the sense of the Lord of the Rings films and then the Hobbit films. That is the aesthetic, the definition of Lord of the Rings and Middle Earth to so many people. So now we're going to see it in uh, completely new hands. And that comes, you know, with its pluses and minuses as well. Yeah, no, no. And I think it's super, super interesting. Like two two things there. One, that you rightly bring up the fact that um, J.R.R. Tolkien, who has been dead for a while now, and Christopher Tolkien, who only died recently, um, are uh, no longer involved in, in the kind of maintenance and stewardship of, of the Tolkien estate and of the legendarium. Um, because this, this is... Uh, this does something to what this show is. Um, and I've mentioned, you know, that the Tolkien estate is legendary, legendarily kind of crotchety and, and, and kind of covetous of, of their IP. Um, and they are a nightmare to deal with legally and have done undoubtedly, uh, uh, heaps and heaps of damage to like copyright law, uh, generally, um, and the nonsense mess that is copyright law. Um, but, um, if you kind of strip away all of that additional legal context, you get back to the fact that, um, J.R.R. Tolkien and Christopher Tolkien, um, created the legendarium. Um, J.R.R. Tolkien did the bulk of the, the writing, um, and Christopher Tolkien did a lot of the editing and a lot of the, the sort of additional work to make, uh, the legendarium what it is today what it is that we recognize of it um and and in this i think they are kind of um more or less equal partners for those of us who are like not jr tolkien um and i and i think actually the the kind of equivalent the more like popularly understood equivalent is probably something similar to like uh george and marcia lucas and Irvin kirshner and and their like uh equal contributions to uh you know the empire strikes back um and and the star wars original trilogy so this uh what the power of the ring rings of power 
Um, the Rings of Power is the first uh, Lord of the Rings or Tolkien-inspired uh, production that will not have uh, any input from Christopher Tolkien um, or J.R.R. Tolkien. Um, and I think that is significant. Um, and, and, I, and the reason I think that is significant is because that means for the first time, this is essentially a wholly transformative work. Um, I don't believe in like auteur theory or whatever. I don't necessarily think that like the primacy of the author is an important thing. I, I don't think that like the author's interpretation is the only interpretation that's valid, but this is the first time where uh, the people who created this, this universe, this cultural uh, universe and um, won't be around to have any sort of influence over it. And um, which means that the only thing to legitimize this um production as the like definitional take um of you know whatever it is that it's about to portray whether it's like the second age as a whole whether it's just Numenor whether it's just Gladriel's people and the only thing to legitimize it as the definitive take is the fact that it has an enormous amount of capital behind it um and and in effect the only thing that really makes it any different to like a person posting a fan video online um dealing with the same time period is the fact that it's got Amazon's billions. And you can argue, you know, it, it also has the Tolkien estate's backing, but the people who are um, caretakers for the Tolkien estate right now um, aren't J.R.R. and Christopher Tolkien. They did not have the same creative input into the legendarium. They are just the legal stewards of it now. And um, so that I think makes it uh, a very interesting. Um, and like, it's essentially like, you, you know, it's kind of like how um, after, what was it, series eight, season eight of Game of Thrones came out, loads of people were like arguing that um, the reason it was so bad is because uh, the showrunners, uh, Weiss and Benioff, like went um, totally away from whatever it was that uh, uh, George R. R. Martin uh, wanted for the like culmination of the series. And I think lots of people rightly argued back no, uh, like George R. R. Martin is still around. He still has like some influence over the show. You can't just say these things are divorced. Um, unlike the, the Game of Thrones example, um, the Lord of the Rings really is now going to be without that, that sort of like authorial influence. Yeah. Um, I hate to keep bringing everything back to Game of Thrones, but I do think it's maybe as instructive of a parallel or as similar as you can get without, um, having the author of that work having died already, you know, knock on wood, George R.R. R. Martin is still with us and will at least be with us when we release this podcast or else it will be <laughs> really awkward. But um, George Martin stopped officially like working on the show following season four um, in terms of he was writing an episode per season. And uh, season four is kind of the last, like, Kind of like everyone thinks The Simpsons like stopped being great at season eight. Um, everyone kind of thinks Game of Thrones, like the first four seasons are impeccable. And then after that, it's a little more uneven. And initially, um, so he stopped working with season four. But then when they finished season five, they had essentially worked through much of the book content that already existed. So at that point, uh, for the Game of Thrones showrunners, that's where they were kind of unchanged, so to speak. Um, not completely divorced from the canon, but they had more room to like do whatever they want as long as they got to the right endpoints. And at first it seemed like, okay, this is going pretty well. Season six is generally considered one of the best uh, Game of Thrones seasons, um, mostly because it has some really big set pieces and a couple scenes that really push it, you know, over the edge of being good television. But um, then season seven and season eight came and those were much less well-received um, than season six. And that's where kind of the guiding voice of George Martin kind of feels like 
it could have helped, even though uh, David and Dan were working with bullet point outlines of where he was going to end, like where, like, say, Daenerys and Jon Snow and the Lannisters were going to end. Uh, but without any of the context or all of the world building that the show had already scrapped uh, before they had even gotten to the point. So um, it's as close as I can think of, of something maybe that was under the stewardship of someone or the people who were creatively involved and then was just completely not. Um, you can maybe say something similar happened with uh, Marvel Comics, uh, because, you know, Stan Lee was heavily involved uh, with, like, you know, selling Marvel to television and to the cinema. Um, granted, Jack Kirby and Steve Ditko and all the artists who did a lot of the work were not involved in that. Um, that's a whole other story. Sorry. But uh, <laughs> that's the only other thing I can think, you know, you can think about. And I guess, I mean, this happens all the time. You know, Charles Dickens is dead, but people are kept adapting his work. But um, I, I I think I'm getting a little off topic here. This is what happens when you don't have show notes and have to react uh, <laughs> on the seat of your pants. But um, yeah, I think the the George Martin, at least Game of Thrones, is kind of the best analogy I can come up with having that change in stewardship of who's actually, you know, in charge of like maintaining the canon or the story or whatever you want to call it. Yeah. And I think for me, like the, the key difference between uh, this and Game of Thrones is that like, um, you know, even if George R. R. Martin wasn't involved in the last couple of series, like he was uh, sort of involved in the like creation of the original ones. And so it does like have its own sort of legitimacy to like um, its mm -hmm. part as like creating the canon of Game of Thrones or uh, like a, a Song of Ice and Fire because George R. R. Martin was involved in it. Um, this uh, new show um, and I'm not just like setting this up because I think I'm going to hate it and like don't want people to acknowledge it and like want to delegitimize it before it kicks off. But like this show is not going to have any involvement from Christopher Tol Tolkien or J.R.R. Tolkien. Um, and, and so, um, it is entirely an interpretation of, of the source material. Um, and, and kind of for me, the, the best way that I've been trying to like explain this or maybe rationalize it to myself in my head is, um, uh, you know, um, in history, uh, like, like when when you're a historian, you're presented with like um, certain pieces of evidence, um, and I could look at a table full of evidence and come away with it with um, you know a certain interpretation of of what that evidence says. So like I could have like you know uh, some pins, uh, some political pins, and some political paraphernalia, and a woman's woman's dress, um, and I might look at that and say, okay, this to me indicates that like uh, women in Edwardian Britain were um, especially put politically engaged and they showed that their their political engagement through like the colors of the uh dresses they wore and through the pins that they wore someone else might look at that um, and say, um, you know, my interpretation of this is that, um, the, uh, the fashions and, and like artistic customs of Edwardian Britain actually, um, limited what women could do politically, um, and, and kept them kind of caged in a sense. Um, and, and so we both have the exact same pieces of evidence before us, but, but come away with wildly different interpretations. Um, and, and, and what, <laughs> what I kind of feel like is this show is going to take, uh, certain bits of like evidence from, and the Lord of the Rings books and the Lord of the Rings appendices, um, and is going to present its interpretation. Um, and the, the, the kind of worry for me is the fact that it does have a billion dollars behind it. So effectively, because this is going to be the first time that, um, the second age is ever seen on screen, 
What I feel slightly worried about is the fact that this is going to be treated as the only interpretation and the canonical interpretation, when in reality, the only thing that differentiates it from, say, someone posting online, like Frodo Lover 69 posting a 500,000 word, uh, like fan script, um, online dealing with the second age, the only thing that differentiates these two is the, um, access to the copyright, um, and the billions and billions of dollars that Amazon is going to throw at this. Um, Basically, I'm just like, I'm, I'm just like feeling a little concerned now that I know they're going to deal with Numenor and being like, okay, uh, let's back up here and just acknowledge that this isn't going to necessarily be the definitive or only correct take on this part of the canon. Yeah. And I think this is something that I'm just um, preemptively defined to be okay with, or at least my shields are up just because I am a Marvel Comics reader. Um, so basically, all those creations who were originally created by, you know, Stan Lee and Steve Ditko and Jack Kirby have gone through so many iterations. And you could, you know, say that Roger Stern's Spider-Man of the 80s was essentially a fan fiction in a way. Um, he just had the backing of Marvel to officially do it, um, as opposed to the people who were, you know, drawing Spider-Man comics in their notebooks back then. Um, so... I guess, yeah, like the Legendarium is not there. The Legendarium is not where the Marvel 616 and overall multiverse canon is where people are think of it as, oh, there's wildly different takes and multiple iterations and no true one is definitive per se. Um, but, you know, the Lord of the Rings really isn't there. And one thing we'll talk about, maybe not today, but when we get maybe a little more concrete on what the show is going to look like and how it's going to be portrayed is that kind of the Lord of the Rings is solidified as the movies that people saw um, 20 years ago or so, and how much this is going to veer into that or veer away from that, um, probably try to thread the needle and try to stick to that aesthetic because, you know, in a sense, it is a winning aesthetic. Um, but also, you know, like you said, there are definitely places where you know, things could be better, things could be improved or taken in wildly different directions. Um, so I'm very curious to see how it's going to interact with the existing Lord of the Rings cinema, if it's going to borrow heavily from that, because um, it definitely wants to appeal to the people who like those movies. That's definitely the target audience, first and foremost. Apologies to all the toke folks out there. Um, <laughs> but uh, it is, I mean, I, I would say anything coming out of Amazon is going for the widest possible appeal and not nothing too niche, especially when it's banking on a billion dollars out of it. Yes. Yeah, yeah. Um, and I think this is kind of the, the key and interesting thing. Um, I, I kind of briefly mentioned this, but um, the terms of the legal settlement, settlement between the Tolkien estate and between uh, the Warner Brothers slash New Line Cinema and late, laterally between the Tolkien estate and Amazon Studios is such that um, the show can only touch on things that are mentioned in the books, The Lord of the Rings, or the extensive appendices uh, to the Lord of the Rings. Um, and in some previous episodes, we've gone through what those appendices are and what they deal with. Um, they cannot touch things that are mentioned in the Silmarillion, um, and they cannot touch things that are mentioned in The Hobbit. Um, so if it's only mentioned in The Hobbit, it's no-go. Um, and if it's only mentioned in the Silmarillion, it's no-go. Um, if it's mentioned in the appendices, then they can touch it. Um, and so this is this is interesting because the Second Age, which is what we now know this show is going to deal with, um, is something that is actually dealt with uh, in parts um, in the Silmarillion. Um, and so they are going to be limited in, in some ways by that. Um, but there is also a lot that's only hinted at um, in uh, in the Silmarillion um, and is hinted at in the uh, Lord of the Rings appendices um, that will be quite interesting. Um, 
One of the things that we know for sure, and there are not very many things, um, is that Morphid Clark is uh, cast as Galadriel. Um, and this gives us one anchor point. Um, and to be honest, it's not a hugely revealing anchor point because Galadriel is around for so long and because Galadriel has her uh, fingers in so many pies. Uh, that in itself is not necessarily... Um, uh, especially instructive. Um, there was a synopsis that was released in, uh, January of 2021, I believe, um, which ironically is like a month before I got into Lord of the Rings generally. So, haha. Um, but, um, it mentions that, um, the locations, uh, or some of the locations that the, uh, show is going to touch on include, uh, Numenor, um, include, uh, the elven city of, Linden, and there's one other that I've now forgotten, which rocks. Um, but basically, we, we kind of have a, a, a broad uh, outline. Um, and we also know that it's going to be an anthology series. Uh, so <laughs> there's going to be a lot of breath, I think, to the show. And that might be because they're kind of limited in terms of the actual depth based on this uh, lawsuit. Yeah, to be honest, I... Uh, for because Game of Thrones, sorry, is is uh, having its own prequel come out. Uh, I think later this year as well. And they, I kind of wanted them to do an anthology series because they're doing a Targaryen focused show. And I'm like, I'm not that interested in like one set of Targaryen so much as maybe they're like 200 year history and would have preferred that. So at least Lord of the Rings is doing that for me. Um, the only other piece of thing I do know, um, or something that I could speak to is that one of the other cast members is Robert Arameo, who played the young Ned Stark in flashbacks in Game of Thrones season six, the Tower of Joy scenes. Um, he is supposedly cast in the role of Beldor, um, but that's about as much as I know. I'm not super knowledgeable about the Second Age, but or at least I wasn't until I started doing this podcast with Emily. <laughs> so that's about the extent to which we know. It's still very... We don't know a whole lot uh, as of yet. I imagine that first trailer, whenever we get it, which I'm sure we'll podcast about, um, will give us a little more, you know, how to focus in our energy on exactly what they're going to cover. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, and I'm sure it will break our brains when it happens. Um, uh, one of the things that I want to do really, really quickly um, is give just like kind of a brief outline of the second age, because like, I, as you rightly say, it's not a, an age that people know a huge amount about. Um, the bulk of it is uh, dealt with like in kind of piecemeal terms in the Silmarillion or like in literally a couple sentences that could be basically bullet points in the Lord of the Rings appendices and then filled out by like, for example, the unfinished tales. Um, the second age is kind of something that I, I quite like because it's, um, it, well, it's effectively the age of Numenor. Um, and as we've gone through on, on this podcast, um, in a couple different episodes, um, Numenor is the, the kind of high kingdom, the like, um, uh, like the apotheosis of the like kingdoms of men. Um, and it is settled by, um, the men who go fully west, um, after their awakening, who are kind of seeking out God. And so it is kind of considered like the, the holiest kingdom of men. Um, it's also an island in the middle of the Sundering Seas. Um, and, uh, it is ruled over by the descendants of Elros, who is Elrond half Elvin's twin brother. Um, and even though Elros lives for 500 years, uh, there are quite a few generations of kings and some ruling queens uh, that rule in his stead. Um, at the very, very end of the Second Age, uh, actually what ends the Second Age is uh, the uh, uh, fall of Numenor, uh, the great wave that sinks Numenor. 
um, which is dealt with in the Akalabeth, so uh, in the Silmarillion. So I, I doubt we'll see that in the film, uh, or sorry, in the TV show. Um, in between uh, the start and end of the Second Age, there's a lot of stuff that we've also kind of touched on in, in various ways in the podcast, um, including like the War of the Elves and Sauron, which many of you correctly pointed out is a horrible name. Um, and uh, and then there's also like, uh, as we talked about at the start of the, well, when we entered Moria, uh, there's like the uh, founding of Regian, which is uh, the the region and the like uh, kingdoms where the elven f- uh, forges were uh, that <laughs> that forged the great rings of power so so no doubt we will see her again in some detail in this show um and then also the uh establishment or the secondary establishment of uh moria um we also have uh at various points so i'm trying to do this off the top of my head and i'm like i'm inevitably gonna forget some massive event and someone's gonna be like you forgot this you're an idiot and i'm gonna be like you're right um what is it ah uh uh galadriel and caliborn uh arrive in uh, Lothlorien um, and establish, well, sort of establish Lothlorien as a major elven power. Um, and then at the, uh, like, properly in the, like, last couple years of uh, the uh, Second Age, we get the founding of Gondor and Arnor um, and the Battle of, well, the War of the Last Alliance and the Battle of the Last Alliance. Um, one thing that I would like to mention briefly um, and this is mostly as like a prediction because I think that I'm really going to be right um, and so I want to like have this on record so I can come back to it when the show comes out and be like look I'm the smartest person in human history all hail me um, in the middle of the second age when the uh, forges of Aragian the elven smiths um, are hard at work on creating the rings of power uh, Numenor has a ruling queen um, and her name is Tar Talpirian um, and Tara Talpirian is really, really interesting um, because uh, she is kind of the first of the uh, rulers, the, the ruling monarchs of Numenor, to not give up her power, uh, to cede her power to her, her successor in advance of her death. Um, it is kind of tradition among the, uh, well, traditionally the kings of Numenor to, uh, within like a decade or so of their deaths, to uh, pass over the like scepter of power to their successors so that their successors can establish themselves. Um, and also is kind of a show of like humility on behalf of the, the outgoing monarch as like, <clears throat> I know that my power isn't, um, isn't uh, like o- omnipotent. It isn't um, all, all powerful. Um, Tower Talpirian does not give up her power. She dies. Uh, without having relinquishing the um, scepters to her successor, and she also doesn't have an heir, which complicates things. And there are some fucking wacky sexual politics involved there, which Tolkien should be uh, slightly ashamed at. Um, but um, I very much just su- suspect um, that Tarar Talpirian is going to show up uh, in this TV show because she is uh, a very melodramatic kind of figure in in the second age and um, but also um, and i say this with like great fear in my heart i'm also excellent girl boss fodder uh so so we will see <laughs> oh no you got to pick the messiest characters for your uh drama television these days so at least that sounds right if they don't you know girl boss the shit out of her yeah, um, yeah. <laughs> Before uh, we kind of wrap up, is there anything else you want to say uh, broadly about the teaser or the material they're going to cover? 
Um, yeah, so I, so I guess one of the things, um, because I don't want to like come off as, as overly negative. I think I have like my fears and, and my, my critiques, um, already. Um, but one of the things that was pointed out, um, earlier, uh, today, um, that I, I think is actually like a harbinger of good things to come is, um, the, teaser trailer though it looks like cg is in fact not cg it's entirely practical effect well not entirely practical effects it's largely practical effects um and it was um uh spearheaded by the practical effects supervisor for the uh movie 2001 a space odyssey um and and i think this is actually really interesting and really good because uh especially with like a union busting company like amazon we've seen over reliance on cg um and as a way to kind of cheapen up overall production costs because, uh, people who, who like artists who work on computer graphics are traditionally not part of a unionized shop floor. So can therefore be exploited and paid less, yada, yada, yada. And seeing that they have gone and used practical effects in this first teaser trailer. And um, while I'm still largely skeptical of anything that Amazon does, does seem like a good thing for me and something that I'm quite uh, excited about and interested by. Yeah, Douglas Trumbull is the SFX designer who worked on 2001 A Space Odyssey and has been involved with a lot of other projects over the years. So uh, seeing his name, you know, actually made me feel better about the teaser because, you know, I saw it and I'm like, yeah, this is fine. Um, But then kind of going back and reading that they actually did it with sustainable redwood and everything here is practical. I'm like, okay, Um, some people put some thought into this, even though I don't feel like they put a lot of thought into the title. Um, or rather, I think the title <laughs> The Rings of Power is very much an SEO-driven title. Um, <laughs> so that, you know, if they for any reason need to drop the Lord of the Rings from a tweet or any other thing to save some text, um, they still have rings in there um so that it still shows up in search terms and hopefully overpowers our podcast. I'm sure Amazon is really worried about how much Lord of the Rings content we put out. Um, so they want to make sure they get that sweet, sweet SEO. They're coming for us. Um, I guess uh, if you're okay with us kind of closing this out, Emily, uh, we will in some fashion, you know, be talking about this show. It airs in September. Uh, we don't have a definite plan on that, but don't expect us to be silent on it. Um, of course, we're, all, we're we've already recorded a half hour on just the teaser trailer without any footage. Um, we will also hopefully be able to do some kind of quick reaction to an actual teaser with actual footage and actually getting a feel for what the world is like, or if we get more details about what the story is, and maybe we can work on some primer episodes to, you know, vaguely talk about um, some of the stuff we think they might cover, which to that end, um, if you go over to our Twitter, Emily did pick out a bunch of episodes which um, are kind of relevant to what we think this show might be about. Those are episodes 4, 10, 11, and 12, um, which are all officially out as of the time that hopefully this is released to you guys. And then episode 13 as well should also go into that, but we have not yet released that either privately or publicly. But if you go back to any of those episodes, we should um, have plenty of second age stuff uh, for you to chew on until we get to the show. And with that, we will sign off. So until next time, remember, I would have followed you, my brother, my captain, my king.